0: Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, we're taking it right from the headlines of Twitter and jumping in on a discussion between Denny Hamlin, Corey LaJoy, and some others about what makes a good car and how much the driver makes a difference in what equipment he or she is in. That plus, of course, our big Homestead preview. But first, as always, this is episode 65 of Positive Regression. This is the Carl Adams edition. David, as usual, lately I had to ask, who the heck is Carl Adams? (laughs) But Carl Adams is a Southern California guy who had a short stint in the Cup Series back in the 70s. I did learn he drove a beautiful race car, red, white, and blue, number 65. He had 28 Cup starts with five top tens. So when you do that percentage, not too bad. What else should we know about Carl Adams, David?
1: Yeah, nine of Carl Adams's 28 starts in the NASCAR Cup Series came at either Riverside Speedway or Ontario Motor Speedway, both in California, and this isn't a coincidence. There's good reason for this. He was a regular in what became the Winston West Series that has now evolved to the ARCA West Series, but between the years of 1954 and 1997, the West Series had regular combination races with the NASCAR Cup Series, and there were kind of three different eras to this. Uh, between 1954 and 1970, nearly every Cup race that took place on the West Coast, and that was road courses, short tracks, what have you, uh, they were combination races, and West Series drivers actually had a lot of success won a good chunk of them uh but moving on as as cup drivers became more privy to tracks uh on the uh, the pacific coast between 1971 and 1984 this is the era where carl adams fell only two tracks hosted combination races ontario and riverside the only west series driver to win during this era was ray elder And between 1985 all the way to 1997, so this actually is kind of fairly recent, Sonoma Raceway stood out as the track that saw the only combination race. The the last combination race, as I mentioned, 1997, Butch Gilliland, father of David, grandfather of Todd, was the highest finishing West Series driver in that race. He finished 24th. Larry Gunzelman, Jeff Davis, and Sean Woodside were, as far as I can tell, the only other West Series drivers in this race. There were seven other drivers from the West Series on the entry list. They did not qualify. One of those drivers was current Truck Series team owner, Bill McAnally. So, Carl Adams, a part of... Uh, mostly a West Series driver, but a, but a part of a, an era. Just this weird little moment in NASCAR history that featured combination races, and that's something that we don't see anymore. And I'm glad that he happens to be number 65, and we're able to talk about just this one weird
0: little part of NASCAR history. Interesting stuff. You're always digging up the good stuff, and, and it's important to remember just the the roots of uh, you know. Obviously, we we appreciate the southern eastern aspect, southeastern aspect of, of NASCAR, and you know the roots of it, but A large culture and so many drivers that came from Southern California, just the West Coast in general. And I think we could put Carl Adams on that list. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that was,
1: that's a storied history, right? Like it's almost a fraternity of California drivers. You hear the stories now about all of these young drivers, even a young Kevin Harvick slept on Ron Hornaday's couch, like that whole thing. I think there was like a push to put Ron Hornaday's couch in the NASCAR Hall of Fame as part of an exhibit, but like that spoke to, this community of California racers that all sort of supported each other, raced when they could race, and a lot of them wildly talented, and Carl Adams was able to showcase
0: that in a few of these combination races that he participated in. For real, look up his paint scheme, his number 65 paint scheme. It is a beauty, At first time i would seen it. So good choice, David. Episode 65 of Positive Regression, the Carl Adams edition. Alright, next up from this episode, let's talk about something, David, that, that came after the Atlanta race. Uh, Twitter was a buzz post Atlanta because a friendly conversation, at least at first, I think, between Denny Hamlin and Corey LaJoy, again, all on Twitter, you can go back and look at it. It turned a bit personal and petty eventually, but then it turned, I think, relevant because we're gonna focus on that part about driving ability, results, and the equipment that these two drivers are in. I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit, but it was an interesting conversation with LaJoy, Corey LaJoy, essentially making the point, hey, I would do pretty damn well or better if I was in great equipment. And Denny responding, yeah, okay, I'm in good equipment, but I'm also winning because I'm a good driver. And we got some clarity when an Xfinity driver Josh Williams chimed in to the Twitter conversation saying, if you swapped the 32 and the 11 car, They'll finish the same spot no matter if Corey or Denny is driving. To which Denny replied, what you're insinuating is that the car is 100% of the car's performance, just not the case. So, David, I mean, to boil it all down here, this is a, a pretty interesting conversation when it comes to separating equipment versus driver and what each supplies to this ultimate success of the race team. And it just made me think. What if someone out there actually had a metric and made a living off measuring driver input toward a race team? (laughs) Wouldn't that be crazy? What if there was an entire podcast dedicated to that? My head would explode. Oh, wait a minute. That's what positive regression is, and that is what you do so well for a living, David. So where do you want to start out this conversation? Because it is happening amongst drivers in the industry right now as it plays out on social media. Car versus equipment. I mean driver versus equipment, and what the driver provides how do you want to tackle this one? Oh wow um
1: you know i it's it's kind of one of those cases that Corey Lejoy might be a bad example for this. I think if you did put him in a Gibbs car, he could run pretty well where where you're gonna see a big difference uh you know I, I think we we spoke last year uh, Las Vegas. It was either Joey Gase or Garrett Smithley that pissed off Kyle Bush, but th- that, that might be the, the thought is if what happens if, you know, Kyle Bush drives a car in the rear of the field and some of these guys in the rear drive a good car. That isn't as straightforward. Um, you know, so, some of these drivers are going to be able to make that transition and there's more that than that goes into that than just talent. Uh, for one, it's communication. So I might, I might start there, Alan. Um, you know, towards the end of last season, I spoke with Ryan Priest and Daniel Hemrick, and they were the two rookie of the year, uh, candidates outside of Matt Tift. But I spoke to them about the biggest hurdles that they faced as rookies in the cup series. And both of them, Almost as if they planned it, pointed pointed to the level of communication necessary in order to make a fast car faster, as if that they were kind of surprised that it was that necessary. Um, both of them lacked experience in identifying and articulating what was needed. Both were working with crew chiefs last season that they hadn't previously worked with. And uh, Daniel Hemrick actually told me that the pace of the cup series work schedule, as in no off days, seven days a week was something of a shock to his system because he felt there was not ample time to debrief and then make corresponding changes. He, he said that if he wanted a change made, it might happen in a month or so. So that is just the disadvantage that any young driver faces when they lack experience. So if a driver is moved from a bad car into a winning car, where I believe they will lack the most, and this is just based on anecdotal evidence, is the ability to identify how to make the car better. In my opinion, it's believable that in any form of racing, take NASCAR, IndyCar, Formula One, you want to go into motorcycles, let's do that too, whatever. It is easier to improve upon a 25th place car, a 35th place car than it is a third place car. And by that, I mean that when you're running near the rear, There are a lot of things that you can do to make your car better in the moment or over the course of a few months. But when you're the third place car and you're trying to become the first place car, looking for the one thing you lack is like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? You know what the needle might look like. You're more likely to find it if you have the experience in searching. And I think that is something that gets really lost in these kinds of conversations is that there are plenty of drivers near the rear of Cup Series fields that really don't understand how to take a fast car and turn it it into a winning car because they don't know – the minutiae of what is required in order to do that because it, it just isn't straightforward. It's not like making improvements to the car that they have already familiarized themselves with. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And it's no fault of their own. Right. I mean, it's when you look in and read back this Twitter argument, it's easy to see Denny Hamlin kind of come across as a bad guy or a jerk for being in all this successful equipment, which he's earned by having success. But I think there's some truth to it in terms of the lack of experience certainly plays a role. He I mean, he made a point in one of his tweets is that imagine, you know, real pressure is having the best of the best and then not winning with it, right? I mean, when you have the best of the best, Ooh, you yeah. better go out and win with that equipment. And the real pressure starts when you're not having the success and you're in all that equipment. So I think he was trying to defend himself by saying, uh, look, you know, yes, I have all this experience and success, but it's also well-earned and I'm delivering. Yeah.
1: So that, okay. So that speaks to just a higher caliber of racing, right? So I, I've, I've thought about this because I read this conversation on Twitter too. Like, Fox and NBC are routinely criticized, especially like within the industry from some of the smaller teams for only showing the front runners. But I'm going to defend the TV networks on this one detail. The best, most nuanced racing is happening at the front of the field. I, I would argue that the cameras are most often pointed in the right direction in this regard. And I'm trying to avoid the checkers and chess analogy because that gets used a lot, but that's kind of what this is. So like what you see at the front of the field at the sports highest level within the top five, it is so, it is so hard to just pass within the top five, like good luck getting spots. What you just mentioned for the teams are really just trying to avoid making big mistakes because the ramifications of the mistake are huge. That would lead to this big loss. So playing offense which is sort of what Denny is saying, like just not only just keeping your position at the front of the field, but actually advancing, that's very tough. And when everyone is close to equal like that, it requires some driving savvy. And whether it's trying to make a pass on a driver like a Harvick or uh, Martin Truex or Kyle Bush, or outsmarting their crew chiefs on pit cycles, or finding a hole on a restart when those guys really know how to close off those holes, that all requires savvy. And if a driver lacks that savvy, then that becomes the very mistake that teams are constantly trying to avoid when they're at the front of the field.
0: You often point out, if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, I mean, you've made this example before, but if you're a good passer and say you're in the back half of the field, it is, I don't know if easier is the word, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem to be a bit easier maybe when you are competing against the likes of the Rick Ware racing cars or some of the front row cars. Passing, I guess what I'm trying to say is it gets a lot harder, right, When if you're trying to pass Kevin Harvick. Denny Hamlin, and Kyle Busch than if you're passing for 29th or 30th. Is that fair? I mean, you've made that, that argument before.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we've seen a few recent examples of that. Uh, I think about Ross Chastain when he climbed into the six car earlier this year as the substitute driver for Ryan Newman. All of his passing numbers in trucks, Xfinity, and in the Cup Series when he was driving for premium... They were very good. He was an efficient passer. He wasn't wasting a lot of time, but he wasn't wasting a lot of time against the likes of Quinn Huff and Bryn Pool and, and cars like that. Well, when he moves up through the field, he's now trying to overtake a different caliber of driver. And it just, it just is not that easy. Um, if we can think back to 2015, there was, an example where I usually share with people who are analytics averse, but I, I pointed this scenario. David Reagan filled in for Kyle Bush when Bush was sidelined with a broken leg and a broken foot. David Reagan averaged a 22nd place finish in a Joe Gibbs racing car that Kyle Bush then climbed back into and took it to a championship. Reagan earned himself a negative production rating and he earned every bit of it. But that was, that was one example in which you could clearly tell that this isn't the normal driver of this race car and that the difference Kyle Busch makes as a talent is obvious. And it, it might have have had a lot to do with the notion that David Reagan had previously been driving for, front row motorsports at a time when front row isn't even as good as the front row we know now. And he wasn't used to seeing the front of the field and understanding their, uh, their latest tricks and, and lacking that familiarity. And yeah, he really, he really struggled with a very fast race car because he was out of his comfort zone. He was out of his element. And when you go from the back of the field to the front of the field, there is going to be that system shock. That's something that you just have to anticipate. And it's conversation like these. I think we've kind of moved past it sometimes, but there's conversations like these that make me think, oh, there are still drivers at the rear of the field that think all they are lacking is a perfect race car when auto racing is so much more than having a perfect race car, even getting close to perfect is difficult. And then once you're at that level, you have other cars that are close to perfect. And figuring out a way to outpace those cars is something that requires experience and nuance and intelligence. And Denny Hamlin is at that level. Um, Josh Williams might not be at that level, but that 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 is the difference that we see each Sunday is at the front of the field uh, we're watching the best of everything, the best cars, the best crew chiefs, the best engineers, and the best drivers, and the product is a good race at the front of the field. That's why the cameras are on uh, on those battles because that is where the most intense action is going on.
0: And to be fair, I don't think if you ask Corey LaJoy if you put him in a Gibbs car tomorrow, would he perform at the level – of these Gibbs guys right away, because I think as we've just, you know, been discussing, there is some level of experience that, that needs to be had. I think the ultimate goal, I think Corey LaJoy would also tell you that with experience, he would be up to that level. I, you know, I believe he believes in himself and he's certainly showing good metrics in the 32 car. David, so, but just to get back to it, you're an analytical guy, but I want to put you on the spot with the hypothetical here. If you put Denny Hamlin in the 32 car and you put Corey LaJoy in the 11 car right now, what do we th- would they run the same? I can't see that happening. I-, I would think someone of Denny Hamlin's caliber would improve the thirty-two. I-, I think Corey Lejoy would not as run as well in the eleven at this moment because of that lack of experience in the top-flight equipment. I don't think that's crazy to say, but w- what do you think would happen?
1: Yeah, okay. So I I agree with you. Uh, it's a it's a good question and it's a good thought exercise. Uh, yeah, I think we would see Corey LaJoy lacking the ability of the drivers now around him. If he, if he climbed in the 11 car, we would see that immediately. I think I, 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 I understand why he believes in himself. And I think that that is fair. And eventually he could get to that point, but he's going to encounter that system shock. And then the inverse of that, a driver like Denny Hamlin would make a program like GoFast better. They wouldn't win races. They're they're operating with old Stuart Haas cars, but with what he has to work with, I think he could pinpoint a a feel for the race car that he's comfortable with and maybe reel off some higher finishes than what that team is normally used to seeing. And that's only because when you are that good and you are at the Cup Series level, you know exactly what you want your race car to feel like. It's already easy to improve on a car that is – we'll call it bad. It's outside the top 30 in in central speed. It's certainly not fast, but it's easy to find areas to improve – I think he can get it to a point where it's at least breaking into a different central speed tier. It might not be that much, though, because that's that is kind of the difference car makes. But you would see a different feel and a different brand of performance if he did that and and perhaps the organization would be better as a whole. The only reason that they can't have a driver like Denny Hamlin is they can't really afford a driver like Denny Hamlin. And that's why we don't see that. Um, But it's certainly a good, it's a great thought exercise to think about, but I think eventually Denny would, would help lift that organization and Corey would take some time to come into his own. I think he's more than capable. And if you want to go a little, uh, one step further, and find some drivers more regularly running towards the rear, I think that they would struggle getting into a fast car. Uh, certainly the result wouldn't indicate that. Maybe they can bring home a top 20 finish, but it would not be the kind of result for which that car is capable.
0: Early on in the season, you did your peer rankings, your performance and equal equipment rating. And again, we're not taking anything away from Corey LaJoy. He is looks about midfield. He is on top of a lot of other drivers when it comes to delivering in terms of what he's you know giving to that equipment and what he's doing with it, how he is performing with the equipment that he's given. Uh, I mean, I mean, he is higher than a lot of other drivers: Matt De Benedetto, Clint Boyer, Tyler Reddick, uh, Christopher Bell. Uh, I mean, certainly there is talent there. So I, I don't want anyone walking away from this discussion thinking that, oh, if he ever got a shot in top tier equipment, he would do nothing. He's doing a lot with what he has now, but there there has to be that experience factor there that, that contributes to this conversation.
1: Yeah. And and experience with that specific team and those cars, for sure. For one thing, he's not crashing those cars. You know, that's a big help. He's not overdriving the equipment that he has at his disposal, because frankly, he can't, if he does, he's going to end up wrecked and he's not going to get those good results. Uh, we spoke last week about my conversation they had with him, um, earlier this year, just trying to get a 27th or 28th place finish is a really big deal for go fast racing. And it's really difficult. And he has been so out kicking that team's coverage this year that it's been noticeable. And you would hope that other teams are going to notice that as well as they're devising their rosters for the 2021 season. He is a free agent. So perhaps he is able to take advantage of his good performance, uh, given that he's kind of had to figure out how to succeed in a very limited environment. Maybe he'll be rewarded for that. If he's able to figure out how to get those kinds of finishes with a go-fast car, then I'm optimistic about his chances of doing that with better equipment and just maximizing whatever else he can have at his disposal.
0: Yeah, and this is, again, another theme we've been talking about throughout the season. Remember, before the season started, the story of Corey LaJoy giving a letter to Rick Hendrick, pitching himself for the 48. Some people may have snickered at that. You don't go from go fast to the 48. But, David, as you we've discussed, I think, on a few different episodes about free agency – you, you take like the Alex Bowman approach or the Matt Benedetto approach. These drivers are are good examples of people who were not in the best equipment. They get the opportunity. Teams take what would ultimately be, I think, a low-cost investment, right, in terms of some other free agents, and they're seeing the benefit of it. They're seeing it pay off. So there are examples out there where, you know, to some, crazy as it may sound to think of Corey LaJoy in the 48 car, uh, you know, Alex Bowman, Matt Benedetto prove it's not that crazy anymore.
1: No, Alex Bowman went from Tommy Baldwin Racing to Hendrick Motorsports, right? I mean, that f- from being fired while in the Taco Bell drive-through True to story. replacing Dale Earnhardt Jr. That's wild, right? <laughs> but that, but that was also um, a pretty considerable gamble by Hendrick Motorsports. You have to wonder whether they're going to make that bet again, uh, or that another team would make a similar bet. Um, that's not always straightforward. Corey on his own volition reached out to Rick Hendrick to essentially say, Hey, listen, I'm, I am very interested in your ride. I'm sure a lot of drivers are interested in the 48 car. Um, but to push that hard for it is something. It'll certainly allow him to stand out. Um, I bet that there is a whiteboard somewhere in Hendrick Motorsports where his name is written on it as uh a possible replacement, I don't know how realistic it is, but I bet his name's on the board because of his willingness to do that and oh by the way, his performance you can't you can't do that and then not perform he he pretty, pretty much uh drew the line in the sand earlier this year um and has has so far stood to it and i don't know I don't know where this goes for him, but if if anyone is to make a case for being the next in uh, line after Bowman and Benedetto, Corey LaJoy has made a heck of a case this year.
0: Good stuff. And it was a good, just an interesting conversation to have. So I'm glad we piggybacked off it. Between uh, it's just good to remind people, David, that drivers and their ability absolutely make a difference, whether you are running 30th or you're running third and being trying to be the intangible that gets the win. You should point out, I mean, you have pointed out, but we should always continue to point out that the fastest car wins the race only 40% of the time. Therefore that other 60%, I think the driver may have something to do with that and the team, of course, but it's something to think about. So it's a debate that will never end in terms of driver input and equipment, but I'm glad we could, uh, I'm glad we could add to it. So good stuff, David. Moving on to Homestead this weekend, uh again the traditional Homestead date as you all know had been at the end of the season and it was supposed to be what in March this year. So and now we're going there in June. Uh where you know summer in Florida, David. I hear that might be hot because it was damn hot in Atlanta. I can tell you being down there on Pit Road. So I can only imagine what it might be down in uh south of Miami. In Homestead, this is a race uh, that we have not ex- really experienced before in terms of the the climate and time of year. To see this track play out, uh, I think the race will probably get started around four p.m. That's later than that traditional two thirty three p.m. start we see in November. But again, it's going to be way hotter. Uh, David, as, as growing up in Florida or around there, <laughs> a little north of there, what should, what do you think we should expect from Homestead? Hot. You
1: should, you should, you should should expect hot. Um, you know, I think, I think now is a good time to, uh, steady our listeners on the notion that this weekend's race is going to look absolutely nothing like previous homestead, uh, races. Look, I've already checked out the forecast, 86 degree forecast for Sunday's race. The high was 64 for last November's event. And it was 61 degrees when the race ended, according to uh, Weather Underground. And that is a that is a big difference. There's going to be less grip. And as such, if drivers feel like superheroes in cool temps and mm-hmm. with all the grip, the inverse is probably true when uh, it's very hot. Uh, things become a bit more conservative. I think we saw that last weekend at Atlanta. There weren't big accidents. There weren't really that many big risks taken uh, as far as driving the car goes. And absent of that, you have few cautions and few restarts. And that's going to be kind of the order of the day. Slick tracks don't necessarily make for bad racing, but they do make for different racing so this weekend's race should come down to speed all most races tend to come down to speed but also handling meaning that all the the usual favorites should probably be heavily favored than they, or, or more favored than they usually are if that makes any sense
0: yeah hey we saw it in atlanta um a track high on tire wear homestead gets the same reputation um i mean do, do you do you see that Kevin Harvick, you know, going out there and dominating again? Uh, in Atlanta, anyway, the Gibbs cars kind of came out and, you know, showed some of their best speed and performance in a while. Uh, I mean, do we see a carbon copy of Atlanta?
1: Yeah, okay. So we saw last weekend Harvick dominated short runs and and then held the lead. It just kind of bled into the intermediate and long runs. Uh, after his final stop during the green flag pit cycle – uh, he was, uh, the fastest car on the track for exactly 17 laps. He then distanced himself from Martin Truex and Kyle Bush enough to where he was just gone. And eventually Truex and Bush became faster towards the end of that run, but it was too late. So how Kevin Harvick won last weekend's race, the manner in which he won, I don't know if that is on the menu uh, this weekend because tires won't wear like that, like Atlanta. You just don't usually see that. You'll see some fall off in lap times of about a second, maybe a second and a half in clean air. And that's probably stretching it. So this is a race where a crew chief is just going to have to make his bet. Either a long run or a short run and prepare for one or, one or the other. And if the race breaks against what they intended, then their game plan is effectively over and they are now attempting to salvage whatever they can.
0: Uh, you talk about the race breaking. We can go back and at least consider last November, even though the conditions will be completely different as we've just discussed. But last November's race, Kyle Bush. Uh, takes the championship down there at Homestead. When you look at that long run versus short run speed in last November's race at Homestead, Miami, uh, I, well, from what I remember, I mean, Kyle Busch's long run speed seemed to matter the most, right? I mean, toward the end of that race, the, the third quarter, I think, is what we brought up. There was a long green flag run, and that's when Kyle Busch, it, it was KB time.
1: Yeah, the third quarter of that race, Kyle Busch's car was the fastest on the track without question. Outside of that, Martin Truex was the fastest. But if you want to break it down to an organization, Joe Gibbs Racing brought three long-run cars to try to win a championship. Kevin Harvick was the aberration. He brought a short-run car. He said after the race was over that he needed a yellow. He needed a restart. He had a short-run car. Uh, and that was a good bet for them because that would have suited their strength the most, like if, if they were going to win the championship on that day, that is indeed how they would have won it. So it was a good call. When you played your strengths, it's typically a good, uh, typically a good call. But will we see that this weekend? I don't know. I, I I would imagine that what we saw at Atlanta will inform a lot of what takes place at Homestead. So you have now an instance in which Kevin Harvick and Rodney Childers can bring, I don't know, close to an identical setup. There are different tracks. But you want your car to do the same thing. I think that's going to be the goal. But you may also see teams correcting what they did wrong at Atlanta. Uh, and that'll be interesting. Absent of the tire wear, it's it, it is going to be... A fight. I think you're going to have some green flag pit cycles because I don't think there are going to be a lot of risk taken when driving the car. Restarts are going to matter and there, uh, there are very few drivers who can really work the non preferred groove at Homestead. So it it is going to be interesting. I think if you, if you liked Atlanta, you're probably going to like this weekend at Homestead. If you didn't particularly care for Atlanta's race you might be seeing the same thing. You you might have to stomach through that. But I think a lot of what we saw at Atlanta is going to inform what takes place this weekend.
0: If there are fewer restarts, that makes them all the more important, David, really, because that that is the best time to make up track position and make passes. So what is the restart dynamic at Homestead when they're lining up? What should we watch for?
1: This was the only race, uh, 2019, that we saw with this current rules package and... The outside groove won most often, uh, retained position most often, retaining 71% of the time. The inside groove retained just 29% of the time. And cars inside the top 14 and restarting from a non-perferred groove gained only eight total positions. Just eight. Three of those belonged to Kyle Larson. He will not be in this weekend's race. Two more spots were courtesy of Kevin Harvick. He will be in the race, <laughs> and given what we now know about him uh that is that is gonna make him quite viable. I would have to say that he is the driver with the target on his back. This weekend for, for very good reason. How this race breaks will certainly determine how much of a favorite he is, but it's hard to envision that he won't be a factor at some point on Sunday.
0: Yeesh. Good speed, short run speed, uh, Kevin Harvick talent and maybe late and restart ability. Uh, I would not want to be the rest of the field if there is a late restart with Kevin Harvick anywhere near there. So, uh, look out guys. Uh, speaking of, uh, contenders, you know, we, we talk about the obvious and then we always like to point out, the contrarian contenders, David. I want to pat my well, I can't pat myself on the back, but last week I did pick Clint Boyer, and he was running really well until he wasn't bad set up. Uh, who knows what the deal was with those right <laughs> side tires, out the uh, right rear tire, but whatever. It was going well for a while. But let's get to the contrarian contender for Homestead, David. I'll let you go first.
1: Can I just – I just need to share with our listeners how deflated you were <laughs> when when – Clint Boyer was also deflated. Like you're just sending me all the sad texts with emojis. Oh my I'm gosh. Personally. <laughs> I
0: personally. I, I want to deliver. And look what I'm going up against David Smith. I mean the inventor of – literally the inventor of this information and I'm trying to compete. So I was just trying to deliver for our our listeners.
1: Uh, I spent the majority of that final long run thinking, well, great. Alan's sad now. All right. <laughs> um, My contrarian contender pick for Homestead, I'm going to say Kurt Busch, and he hasn't won at Homestead since 2002, and it was a much different racetrack back then. He struggled there in recent years, but... So far this year on the mile and a half, he ranks ninth in central speed specifically. And that's important because he ranks 14th in central speed overall. Uh, Chip Ganassi Racing clearly has an affinity uh, this year for this track type. Bush is also right now a positive surplus passer. He had back-to-back killer passing performances at Darlington, he gained over 20 spots more than expected across both of those Darlington races. So if you're if you're buying into Homestead and Darlington, they're they're different track sizes, but they share characteristics. And if you buy into that, then Kurt Busch might also be your contrarian pick for the weekend. He's been scoring good finishes. Uh, like real, like really good finishes. And this weekend, I, I think he might actually be a sleeper to win the race outright.
0: Alright, good one there. Uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm picking a sleeper to win the race outright, but if you are a daily fantasy player, a budget game player, I'm gonna go with a value pick. And look, I can't believe I'm picking it, David, because, uh, I have looked at some of his numbers at the times and I have wondered when they are going to improve. But I can't ignore momentum. My contrarian contender for Homestead Miami Speedway is Austin Dillon, who is on a great run right now. I knew it. You did know this. How'd you know this? How do you know it's gonna I be knew it.
1: I knew uh, you were gonna pick him. He's got good. He's got good speed on the mile and a half. So he's on baby watch. Does that concern you?
0: It does concern me more. Um, you know, hopefully it, look, they are blessed with a family earlier in the week so they can celebrate with a great contrarian contender run on Sunday. A <laughs> uh, little ace, come on, ace. Let's get out there quick so he can prove me right on Sunday and uh, you know give uh, give dad some extra motivation. But look, I mean, you go back as early as the early part of the season, fourth in Las Vegas, uh, and then the last three weeks, Charlotte eighth, Bristol sixth, Atlanta. Atlanta 11th, and he's probably running better in that Atlanta race than, uh, you know, probably should have had a top 10 there. Uh, we've talked about Austin Dillon, we know his faults, we know, you know, how long he's been in the series, and the improvement we would have liked to have seen out of him already. Uh it, In this season, you know, we've mentioned a few episodes ago that he might be ripe for regression in terms of kind of overachieving, especially early in the season, but I'm going to ride the momentum until it starts happening. And I believe that, uh, again, for a value pick, a top 10, Austin Dillon on Sunday at Homestead, Miami.
1: Okay, so I can tell you why that is a halfway decent choice, Uh, is... His speed ranking on the mile and a halfs in 2020 ranks better than Eric Jones, Clint Boyer, Matt De Benedetto, Eric Almarola, and Cole Custer. So that is three Stuart Haas cars, a Joe Gibbs car, and a de facto Penske car. I think. I, listen, I, I kind of like the the direction that RCR is going and certainly i think that's bound to continue once the gen 7 car uh completes their their massive gamble on that but when you say it it's not that bad of a pick especially if this race breaks where there's a late restart he's been taking advantage of those this year and i don't know anything can happen man it it is nascar after all so I don't know, but I do hope for your sake, Alan, that uh, the baby uh, uh, arrives uh, sooner as to not interfere with your contrarian choice.
0: Amen. Let's go baby A. stillin'. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Good episode. A lot of good, a lot of good racing uh, this weekend coming up, so we'll see how those picks do. Don't forget, we're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Tell a friend, tell somebody. This does help in spreading the word. We notice it and it's certainly appreciated and, and we le- and we hope and like to believe it's, uh, you know, providing a little value to your race weekends when you turn on the race on Sundays. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter. We love to answer them. Posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, what are you working on? You're always working on something.
1: This week on motorsportsanalytics.com, I analyzed the early season performance of Bubba Wallace. And that is already posted. But the gist is that he's playing to his strengths. And it's worked out pretty well in a few races so far. Uh, An initial batch of truck series statistics will also grace the Motorsports Analytics page's for uh, those in the Johnny Benson patron category. So if you're not a Patreon supporter, uh, do consider it. Patreon.com backslash motorsports analytics will grant you that access. For all those glorious truck series numbers.
0: Support amazing journalism. It's always something good. And David, just an example, David. Yeah. We, we've talked about Bubba Wallace before. We know his average finish is up, but you dig into the why and show us exactly what is going on. What is, uh, what is going so well over there? What he is doing better? What the team's doing better? It's just such insightful stuff. So make sure you go check that out and support motorsports analytics. Uh I will not be in Homestead Miami this weekend just uh so make sure you just enjoy the entire weekend though I'm on the Fox Family Networks truck racing trucks have been awesome so far uh, I'm a little biased, but watch the truck race, watch the Xfinity race cup race on Sunday. It's going to be good stuff. I'm interviewing the winner of the Xfinity race, so that'll be on Race Hub Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. on FS1. So just keep all your uh, race fandom on the Fox family, and you will be all set. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Make sure you have a great weekend, everybody. This is Positive Regression.